for that company that you you know has 500, 5,000 employees. I mean, that's a lot of brain power right there. You know, that's a lot of talent sitting at your fingertips. Let them go to work, you know, or why do you have them? Let them think, let them experiment, let them learn, let them discover. And when you do that, the organization is unstoppable. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Ron Pereira. Now, Ron is a practitioner. Over the past 20 years, he's held a wide variety of manufacturing, supply chain, and senior leadership roles. He's held the titles of process engineer, engineering manager, master black belt, and Director of Manufacturing and Continuous Improvement. In addition to all of that, in 2002, he was the first American to win the Nokia Global Six Sigma and Overall Quality Award in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, It goes without saying that Ron has an expertise and an incredible competency around the arenas of Lean Six Sigma and process improvement. But here's what's so cool about Ron and what you'll really appreciate about this conversation today. He's not just a practitioner, he's also an educator. It was in 2000 that Ron uh, co-founded alongside some partners, Gemba Academy, and they provide training and teaching and coaching that help organizations truly of all industries and all stages of business ingrain lean principles, practices, and culture into their organization. And I was so excited to talk to Ron just because he shares that duality of practitioner and educator. He hasn't just done these things. He knows how to teach these things to leaders from a wide variety of industries. And so as I was thinking about how I wanted to frame this conversation, I came upon a piece of content that they recorded several years ago on the 10 commandments of never-ending improvement. And I kind of fell in love with this piece of content because it highlighted some fundamental business and leadership principles that I think we can all learn from regardless of our background, and it just proved to be such an incredible conversation. But before we jump into those 10 commandments and how they can play out into your business, it's an incredibly practical conversation. I just wanted to ask Ron about an illustration or case study about the transformation that he's seen occur because someone made the decision to introduce these practices and principles in their organization. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of you know, sort of success stories. One that and we were talking before we hit record there, our mutual friend, Paul Akers at FastCap in, they're up in the um, uh, Seattle, Washington area, Bellingham, Washington, I think they are. They get products and they, they invent products and then they, they ship them all over the world. Started as like a woodworking type thing. Paul Akers is the, the president and he, he invented this fast cap, which was like to, to cover holes on a, on a, on a cabinet. He's a woodworker guy. Anyhow, so they started this company and, and lean permeates everything that they do, literally everything that they do. <laughs> and uh, if you ever go in and visit, and I know you have, um, but for the listeners, if you ever go and visit, all you got to do to understand the depth of the passion for continuous improvement at that company is to walk up to any employee, and I mean any employee, and just say, hey, what was your improvement yesterday? And they'll call it a two-second improvement. It's, it's just a play on words. He wrote a book called Two-Second Lean, but this means a small improvement, right? Because every day, everybody, including Paul, makes a small improvement. And without batting an eye, and there's no eyeballs up to the left trying to imagine or create something. It's just looking you straight in the eye. Oh, yeah, I went and did this, and I'll show you. You know, and it's everybody. 
And, and so like, that's just that, that company just really exemplifies what can happen when everybody buys in <laughs> to this whole idea of making something a little bit better every single day. So yeah, that's one, but I mean, there's, there's so many different, there's, you know, small companies, big companies. Um, there's, it's not always successful cause it's hard, right? I mean, doing this stuff is not easy as your listeners I'm sure can attest to just improving in general is, is hard. But man, uh, that's one of the reasons why I've so enjoyed getting to follow your content and also Paul's content. And there's some other people in this space too, that I'm not naturally a process and systems guy. And therefore, I've never associated process with passion, right? I've always thought like, oh, process is the document that I have to pull out that's really boring that I absolutely hate to follow because I'm creative, right? And yeah. and what's so cool is that y'all kind of, I mean, it seems like in many ways, y'all kind of obliterate that and just be like, no, this is something you can be passionate about. So I'd love to know from you, like you've dedicated your career to this, like, why is it something that you're so passionate about and and why are you so excited about teaching others kind of the fundamentals of it, Ron? Yeah. So I really believe with all my heart that, you know, I'm a person of faith that God puts everybody on this planet for purposes, for, for reasons. And obviously in my case, and probably many of your listeners, and I know for you, eternal reasons, <laughs> ultimately, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but while we're here, you know, what can, how can we best impact this world in a positive way? You know, there's so much brokenness in this world. There's so much angst in this world, whether it's political or viruses or whatever it is, you know, I mean, there's so much darkness in this world. And I really feel that, you know, continuous improvement done correctly will and can and is changing the world for the better. And so that's my part in it from a professional perspective is to help people improve, improve their lives, improve their companies, be happier, right? Have more joy when you're at work, which means that when you go home, you're going to have more joy, right? And you're going to be a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better sister, brother, you name it. And so to me, this thing of continuous improvement, it really transcends a process. Yeah, that's easy. I mean, I can go fix your process anytime. Show me a process and I'll make it better. Easy. Okay. But that's, that's just the sort of the, the, the beginning of it because there's so much deeper meaning. There's intrinsic motivation that we're going after, you know, trying to help people find mastery, autonomy, purpose, you know, trying to really tap into the, the humanness of people. That's really what Lean's all about. Yeah, there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of things that we do. But man, my kids can come in and teach you how to do the tools because they've grown up with it, right? But they might not completely grasp the, the respect for people side of Lean. That's just a very important pillar of this so-called Lean house. So anyhow, I mean, that's where it comes from. It's just making the world a better place, man. Mm, that's so cool. I, I once heard, uh, I think it was Jim Collins say, he, you know, he was mentored by Peter Drucker. And he said that he thinks Peter Drucker spent his entire career answering one question that was, how do we simultaneously increase productivity and humanity? And I, I think so often, and this is me, even before you gave that answer, I look at lean and continuous improvement as a means of 
increasing productivity. It sounds like what you're saying is like, no, if you do it right, it actually also increases humanity. So can you explain that a little bit? Well, yeah, because to really, okay, if you want to just make it a productivity play, which is fine, it's not wrong, but to really do that, the only way to really do that is to tap in to the humans who are making that productivity happen. You see what I'm saying? Mm. Even if you have a factory full of robots or whatnot, I promise you there's people behind those robots. You know, <laughs> yeah, that really right. is. I mean, maybe one day, 50 years from now, Zuckerberg will have this whole metaverse thing and there'll be no work. I don't know. <laughs> that kind of freaks me out, all that stuff. But, but, uh, uh, but no, there's, there's people involved, you know, and, and that's what we've got to ultimately respect is the people involved in those processes. Because when you do that, those people will make the processes better. So the process performing at a high level is the end. The people mm. are the means, you see. Mm. So that's why they're connected. Now, you got to have them both. Don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes you'll have some lean folks who go like, you know, Oh, lean, you know, it's not all about the tools and it's about the people. It's true. It's about the people, but there's a balance because if you don't know any of the tools or any of the methodologies, I can go respect people and, you know, all day long and I don't know what I'm doing. We're not going to make anything better. Right. So you got to have them both. You got to have them both. Yeah. It's not an either or it's, it's an and you need them both process and people. That's so helpful. And so if someone is new to all of this and they're they're sitting here asking the question, okay, I'm bought in on this as being a process thing and a people thing. And they just want your elevator pitch on what is lean, right? Maybe you're on an elevator going to the 15th floor with someone. You've got a couple of minutes to describe what this thing is to people. How do you answer that question, Ron? Yeah. So, I mean, from a history perspective, I mean, most people will point back to say Toyota after the war and, and Japan. And so General MacArthur and the guys went back to Japan after the war and they brought this whole, um, you know, so you heard of TWI, Rosie the Riveter, like, you know, mm -hmm. building the war machine for the allies. Well, the way that we, we got those factories humming, all the boys were off fighting. We had to train up many females, often not always female, but a lot of them were female. And so there was this training system and this way of, it's called TWI, training within industries. There's, there's multiple levers in that in that movement but anyhow we took that and we brought brought that over to japan and we helped japan rebuild after the war and toyota at the time was building you know they had they, they weren't didn't have a luxury of just making a bunch of corollas <laughs> you know they had to make jeeps and some cars and some trucks and it was just all over the place. And so they were really struggling, you know, with resources and money and all the rest of it. And so they sort of slowly developed, they took that TWI stuff, which was very influential for them. And then they continued to build on it into what we would now call the Toyota production system. Okay. And so back in the eighties, um, a group of researchers um, from MIT actually traveled all over the world. They went to Japan, they went over Europe and, and just trying to understand why were these Japanese automakers, namely Toyota, Honda, and some of these other ones, why were they so much better, at least back then, than, than say, you know, the American competitors? And they actually coined the term lean back then in a book was called The Machine That Changed the World. And so that's when the sort of the movement kind of kind of came into this into the West, if you will. And so we started kind of paying attention and, and all these consultants, like my business partner, John, you know, I was telling you before the we recorded, you know, these guys were, were coming over here from Japan many times and teaching industry how to how to improve. And so 
Lean is just nothing more than trying to make our our processes better, um, our businesses more successful, um, improve productivity, improve quality by, you know, respecting people and by improving processes and doing them both at the same time. So, mm. I don't know, it's kind of a long-winded mm. answer, but. No, that's super helpful. I, I would have stayed on the elevator for that answer, Ron. So that yeah, was great. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that's right. I also, what are the, it's kind of an aside principle, what, but one of the things that I think is so cool about that is it's like, man, you want to lead people, you want to lead a movement, just be like so head and shoulders above and beyond what other people are doing in terms of quality and performance. Like, it's just crazy that Toyota was just kind of doing their thing over in Japan and they were so much better that people started paying attention to the point where it's like, okay, now they're changing the world in many ways. Like, does that like stand out to you that it's like, oh no, the way Toyota led is they were just really good at what they did. Yeah. Well, and and to be accurate and fair, I mean, they had to, or they weren't going to survive. You know, and and so that's a sometimes it's really difficult for an organization to commit to getting better when they're doing well. Oh, that's good. That's great. You, you know what I'm saying? So business is good. Sales are good. Everybody's making money. We're all that. And then all of a sudden, you know, a virus hits and you're like, whoa, what are we doing here? You know, or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, and so mm-hmm. Toyota had that you know, in a way, opportunity to seize the the moment. And they did, you know, to their credit, they did. And then, yeah, we all learn from that. So it's been hard, again, in the West, because again, if you're doing well, it's like, do you want to commit to doing better? <laughs> you know, mm. and that that's what's not always so uh, easy about committing to continuous improvement. So yeah, so so there's kind of two audiences there. There's the small business owner that's like, man, we're struggling. And as an owner, I'm really struggling because my stress has increased proportional to the growth of this business. And they're the person that are like, I need to lean, um, right. or I need something like this. But then there's the other person, it sounds like right now that maybe could be described as fat and happy. And is like, they're successful and things are good. And they may be a little bit sloppy with their work. They may be a little bit wasteful, but I mean, they're profitable and that's fine. Why is it important for that second person that maybe things are going well right now to maybe pay attention to some of these lean concepts? Um, yeah. Why is that important? Just look back at history, man. Look at you know, I won't name companies, but I'll name one, Blockbuster. <laughs> there, okay, okay, that's a good one to name. I mean, back in the day, I don't know, you look about, I don't know how old you are, Alex, but back when, back when I was a boy, man, Friday night, the deal was we would go into Blockbuster and <laughs> if my mom, we were really lucky, we'd get like three, you know, like, you know. Yes. Just to clarify, I'm not that young. We would go to Blockbuster on Friday night too. Okay, all right, all right, all right. So, so, but think about that, man. I mean, could you have imagined that Blockbuster will cease to exist back then? Yeah, no way. Everywhere, every corner, there was a Blockbuster. You know, and and I'm not saying lean was, you know, if they would have been lean, they wouldn't have gone out of business or anything like that. But but it's a mindset, this this lean thinking that we call talk about, we call it lean thinking often. It's a mindset that really you shouldn't ever be satisfied, which is tricky because then it could turn into like you're not grateful. 
You know, mm-hmm. so this is balance where, yeah, you should be grateful and thankful. And in my case, I'm very thankful to my higher power for the blessings of my life kind of thing. But even if you weren't a believer, you know, you should have gratefulness in your heart, but that shouldn't lead to being satisfied and being, you know, completely content with the status quo, because I'm promising you someone's on your heels, (laughs) you know, someone's out there trying to do what you do better. You know, Jeff Bezos is famous for saying one day Amazon will go out of business. You know, he's probably right. It might not be in our lifetime or our kid's lifetime. Who knows? But they could, you know, um, Sears. Mm -hmm. Look at that. I mean, so there's, you know, you can just go back and back and just all these giants who you thought were untouchable. Next thing you know, you blink and they're not there anymore. Right. So I'm I'm of of the opinion that if you don't improve, you will eventually perish. Mm. And it seems as though the way you're talking about it now, you believe that you can extract uh, these principles that were once created for a manufacturing environment and apply them to any industry. Oh, is that fair yeah. to say? Oh, 100%. I mean, even in Gemba Academy's case, we make online training videos. And so our customer base, the majority of our customers are not manufacturing. Okay. Really? Oh, yeah. The majority. And we got a lot of manufacturing. Don't get me wrong. But the majority is going to be, you know, a service-oriented business or, you know, a healthcare lean is huge in healthcare world. I mean, you got nurses and doctors and running around um, making things better constantly. So, um, so no, it is for sure way, way beyond manufacturing. There's no industry that is not touched. None. Okay. And so when those people from a wide variety of industries come to y'all, like what is the end result that they're looking for? Like what are they looking to accomplish or maybe even through the lens of what's the problem that they're looking to solve? Yeah, that's a great question. That's in fact, when our sales team is talking to a potential customer, that's the question they're asking. You know, what problem are you trying to solve? You know, what will success look like six months, a year from now? Because it is different for everybody, right? Some people, you know, a lot of times it's just, you know, they want to, if, if they're, they're a for-profit company, which most of our clients are, you know, they want to be more profitable. They want to be, um, you know, without burdening their, their employees, right? It's not about making people work harder or faster or anything like that. Quite the opposite. It's, it's how can we, you know, reduce the struggle is another way. Or, or as Paul Akers would say, fix what bugs you, right? And mm. so many times, you know, our, our customers are, are just looking for ways of, of, of making their business better, making it a safer, happier place to be at, which then leads to greater profits and, you know, and, and, and everybody wins. So it's not about, you know, all these evil, you know, people trying to make more money, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if that's your, your gig, you know, you're employing these people. If you're not making money, you're not employing those people anymore. You know what I mean? That's so, right. that's so, right. Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of the, the, doesn't re- so that doesn't matter. So if you're a hospital, you know, h- how do we make the patient's experience better, right? How do we never make a mistake with, you know, whatever a mistake could be in a hospital, right? Like, so their types of problems that they're trying to go after are going to be very different than an accountant who says, you know what, at the end of every month, it takes me like, you know, three days to close our books. And that's killing us. I sure wish I could do that. And, five hours. Let's go. Let's do it. 
easy. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's really interesting because all the examples, or it sounds like most of the examples you're using are not necessarily startups or even small organizations. It's like, no, we've got this, this massive organization that we're trying to turn and steer and change the culture of in some ways. Uh, I mean, is that is that fair to say, or is it a lot of time culture shift, culture change introducing this stuff? Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, we'll have a lot of I mean, a lot of our customers come to us with an idea of what this stuff is. So we're not necessarily selling them on the idea of you should do lean. Okay. So like optimizing kind of, reinforcing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, scaling. You know, they might have, you know, some of our larger enterprise customers might have a hundred factories or locations around the world and they're trying to speak the same language. So they could, they might have a bunch of different trainers, but they're all a little different. And, and so that what they would rather is have those trainers, instead of training on something, they're going to say, hey, go watch these videos or whatever. And then we're going to come together, answer any questions, and then we're going to go do it. You know, then we're going to mm. make change. We're going to make things better. So that's, so that's, I would say, probably our m- more common situation is that sort of model. But we do have some folks who are brand, brand new you know, to it. And yeah, that's just a different onboarding experience. So we onboard every customer and, and see where they're at. We already know before they buy where they're at, because our sales team does a great job of that. Have you learned anything specifically about, because we work with a lot of people that it's like, man, we've got a $200 million business, hundreds of employees, multiple locations. And their biggest challenge is like, okay, we buy into like having core values. We buy into having specific processes for the way we do things. We buy into holding people to a higher standard with the way they do the work. And they say, the issue is not that we're bought in, not bought into that. The issue is it's really hard to get hundreds of people in multiple locations on the same page with something. So is there anything that you've learned about generating the alignment necessary to make something something like this move in a large organization? Yeah. So it starts for sure with your senior leadership and it starts with them committing to why are we doing this Mm. at the C-suite level? Why are we committing to this thing called continuous improvement or lean or Six Sigma or whatever it is that they want to embark on? Why? And it can't just be like, because our mission statement says that we're going to blah, blah, nah, nah, nah. So does everybody's (laughs) mission statement, you know, like why? Right. And then when you have that why and your leadership buys into the why, and that's sometimes harder than you, you realize, because I'll ask a CEO, why do you want to do this? And they'll be like, <laughs> there's silence for a second. Right. They haven't really thought it through. And so but yeah. once you have that why, then you then you start to, you know, you roll it out. There's some lean tools we call Hoshin Connery or policy deployment, where you, you, you set your high level goals up top at the sort of the organizational level. And then you started cascading it down right? In various levels. Um, and it can, and so that frontline worker in Idaho knows that their work that they're doing, they're trying to make better. It aligns completely back up to the very top, um, why the top mission of the company. So that, that, if you don't have that good, why or that, or the purpose maybe is another way of saying it, like what's, what problem are we trying to solve? Like as simple as that, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And if it's a small little company, you might get away with it. But if it's a larger company with multiple facilities around, you've got to have a strong why and a strong alignment from the very top and then cascade that down. Well, yeah. And it almost sounds like in that answer, you're kind of anticipating roadblocks, issues, challenges, blockers. And it's like, if you don't have a sense of purpose or a reason behind why you're doing this, like you're going to lay down at the first sign of challenge, it sounds like. 
Yeah. I mean, it's no different than, say, starting a business. You know, when you start yeah. a business, you're not making any money. You're spending money and you're spending time. And then all of a sudden you make a buck. You're like, oh, that was kind of cool. You know, that maybe let's <laughs> keep trying. Right. And so it's not really so different. Right. The mind of an entrepreneur being persistent and, and not giving up is sort of the same thing because that entrepreneur, in order to succeed, they have a why. You know, my why was I didn't want to be on the airplane all day long. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that's such a good point because it's like, it's way better to answer the question why when you're excited about your business, you're excited about the change, you're excited about moving forward than when you're waking up in the morning, not making any money. And you're like, I can't remember why I did like, that's a bad time to come up with that answer. Exactly. You have to predict the difficulty is coming because it will be difficult guarantee. Mm. <laughs> you know, so when, you know, there's some tools that we teach or the one's called a failure mode effects analysis, and you think about a process, or maybe you're designing some new widget or new service, you think about what are the potential failure modes of this particular part of the process or part of the machine or part of the service. And if that fails, how severe is it? You know, and so, so we start thinking, we're always looking forward as well. You know, it's almost like sort of war gaming, right? Like, trying to think red team versus blue team, you know, like how are we going to defeat ourselves? You know, how do we defeat our own processes and then putting countermeasures in place so that doesn't happen? Dang, we may come back to that if we have time at the yeah. backside of these Ten Commandments because that's fascinating. So it's in that light that I'd love to jump into some content that y'all have created that's the Ten Commandments of Continuous Improvement. Before we start walking through these 10 I'd love for you just to set up why, like why this list of 10 and why does this matter? Why is this worth us putting our eyes and our attention to? Yeah. So this is a video that gosh, in the very beginning of our company, you know, 2009, 2010, we, we, we created this, this video and, and to be clear, we didn't come up with these 10. I even asked my business partner, John, it's like, Hey, who first came up with these? And he's like, I don't, he don't even know. I mean, they've been around forever, <laughs> right? So I don't, nothing claim, new under the sun. Yeah, I don't new claim that Gemba Academy <laughs> invented these 10, you know, yeah. uh, but, uh, but we made a video a long time ago about it. And, uh, and yeah, so it's, it's sort of a, a lot of these 10 are, are mindset oriented. I mean, there's some process stuff in there as well, but it's a lot about mindset. So it's a really good, a really good base, you know, to sort of stand on as you prepare to embark on a continuous improvement journey with lean or again, Six Sigma, whatever it is that you go into. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's just getting your mind right. <laughs> if you will, I love before it. you go into Man. it. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, like it's a pretty audacious to call a thing a commandment too. So yeah. that I was like, whenever I got into this, I was like, okay, this. I mean, they're they're making some pretty big claims yeah. about this, but it's it's so strong and it applies to so many things, and that's why I wanted to dive into it today. So number one is open your mind to change. Uh, explain a little bit about what that means and why it applies here. Yeah. So. You know, if you're going into any kind of situation with a closed mind or a closed heart, maybe is another way of saying it, you're just not going to allow things to come in and be open to the whole idea that things could be better or things could be things could be different, right? You're done. You got to stop because you, you won't it won't work, right? So mm. we do have to have open minds and we have to be open to being wrong also, you know, so pride and ego can get in the way of so many things, <laughs> but especially continuous improvement. Because if I walk into a meeting with you and and Zach and these guys and I'm like, and I'm pretty sure, man, I've been at this for a long time. I, I know what to do, you know, and, and I kind of take that attitude. Well, you might be like, 
but I don't, I don't know everything. And, and if, so if, if I'm so sure, <laughs> you know, that can also be a trap, right? Because I might be wrong. And so you, there's mm-hmm. a lot of humility that needs to be in, in, embedded in these, uh, in these things. So, yeah. Yeah. So how do you preserve the posture? Because you have, I mean, like you're a great example of this. You've been at this for a long time, right? And I could just perceive that it could be very easily to walk around with the posture of, oh, I've got this. And you've got like a level of assuredness that blocks you from seeing innovation or creativity or new ideas and things like that because you're walking around not curious because you've got this. So how do you preserve a mind that is open to change? How do you do that personally, Ron? Yeah, so it's all about, and this is a, I would say over the last five five years or so, there's been a reawakening to this thing called, we call it Toyota Kata, a guy named Mike Rother. He sort of coined this term and it's, it's basically they went back to try to study Toyota and said, all right, we've all copied everything that Toyota does. OK, we've copied all of the artifacts, all the things that we can see. And yet we are still not as good as Toyota. What gives? And so what they understood then, they learned, they discovered was there was this underlying routine or this dance, if you will, that a Toyota manager or team leader does. And they, they, they codified it as Toyota Kata. And so but the gist of it is. And it really, it really elevated my practice is that you go into a situation with confidence that I think I might know what the answer is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set up an experiment to confirm whether or not I'm right or not. And so the mind of a good lean thinker is the mind of an experimenter. Okay. And so instead of, so I can be very confident that I have the right answer, but in order to get there, instead of just saying, go do that, I'm going to say, cause I could be wrong and I have been wrong. So I've been humbled many times over the years. So that's also helps me, <laughs> right? Like to not be so sure. That's like one of our taglines, don't be so sure, you know? And so what we can be confident about is that, Hey, Let's go run that experiment. And we'll even make a prediction. Hey, I think if we run this experiment, here's what I think is going to happen. What do you think, Alex? What do you think is going to happen? And you say, well, mm. I think this is going to happen. Cool. Let's do it. You know, and then we run the experiment. And then guess what? We see what actually happened. And then we stand back and say, hey, what did we learn? This is what I thought. This is what. And it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's just about, hey, you know, coming up with that with that hypothesis of what we think might happen. So that's really kind of what can help you guard against being right <laughs> is don't like going into a meeting. Don't debate. The biggest waste of time in a meeting is when people sit around a table and debate on who is right. Who's got the right answer. That's the biggest waste of time. The best way to debate is to debate. What's the first experiment we should run? Oh, well, that's good. You know, because that's asking like, okay, how do we test to see what's like, you're not going to be able to figure out in this closed door boardroom, like what's correct. Like, just go do, uh, just go do it. Okay. So I, man, this is so applicable to where our business is at right now. One of our team members, she's our coaching manager. Her name is uh, Olivia. One of the things that I just so appreciate about her is she's just so methodical. And one of the things that she's really challenged me on is like we can do new things, Alex, because I, I mean, I have a new idea for our business every time I take a shower, right? Like it's just like every time, right? And, but she has started to use the word experiment as well. And she's like, 
there's got to be a methodology for proving out whether the new idea is actually the right thing to pursue or not. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that she's working on right now is creating that methodology. So can you talk to me a little bit about like, what does an experiment look like? And maybe even a practical example of when you say we're going to run an experiment, because that feels a little bit more formalized than just like, oh, just try some stuff, you know? It can be as straightforward as a sales professional saying, you know what? Let's say they cold calls. That's their job. They just cold call. They just smile and dial. You know, um, we don't really do that, but let's just say that that an organization does that, and they're not having success. You know, they call a hundred people and they get a hundred no's, and it that's very deflating. That's very difficult, right, for someone to commit to keep doing that day after day, failure after failure. So the experiment be like, well, what are you saying right now? you know, or when are you calling or whatever? There's many variables there, right? And so it'd be like, okay, well, how about if, uh, what do you think is a different approach? What could we try? And the sales professional, you should let them come up with the idea, by the way. Don't tell them the experiment. Let them, or maybe collaborate on it, you know, go back and forth a little bit. And I said, well, you know what? I, I call everybody at 9 a.m. and maybe I'm just on a Monday and that might be the worst time. Well, how about you switch it to Wednesday or Thursday afternoon at three o'clock, you know? And what do you think might happen? You know, well, I think that I might have better conversations and I might be able to, you know, out of a hundred calls, I might get three additional calls. I don't know, I'm just totally making stuff up right now. Okay, but you're yeah, writing yeah. all this stuff down. You're being very deliberate. Okay, this is a practice. So it's deliberate practice, in fact, because we're writing it down. Well, and, and it sounds like too, you're only shifting one variable. You're not changing well, exactly. the script and the time. You're changing the time exactly. and writing down what you, yeah. Exactly. T typically when we're doing these, we, we do one thing at a time. Now there are situations, you know, when you get into the more kind of complicated stuff where you might do multivariate, you know, you change the website call to action and the color of the button, you know, and so you can run what we call design of experiments. But typically in this kind of situation, yeah, we're going to change one thing and we're going to test it and we're going to see what actually happens. Right. And so the beautiful thing is you can't really fail at this. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like you're just going to go into it and learn. You're, you're, you're going to prove that, you know, your prediction was accurate or your prediction wasn't accurate. In either case, it's great because we learned. You know what I'm saying? So you can't lose when you get when you have this approach. Yeah, the losing is just continuing to do 100 calls a day and not changing anything. Exactly. It's like, what what are we doing? And so it's like, it, it seems like there's even hope and like, well, at least we're doing something different and that's a win. And we may still be getting no, but man, we're, we're maybe moving closer to yes, which is exactly. a positive thing. Exactly. That's super helpful. Okay, so open your mind to change is number one. Number two is... Think yes in quotes. Yes, we can if. Actually, I'd love for you to explain this one through the lens of what the opposite is. So, like, what what is what is the opposite of yes, we can if? And then we can talk about the the value and power of that mindset. My son, um, he's fifteen now, and you know, pretty pretty sporty, pretty athletic, and and when he was younger. Um, like we, I, I'd like to work out a lot and do CrossFit and different things like that. And, you know, being, doing pull-ups is a big part of that. Right. And, and for the longest time he couldn't do a pull-up and, and he said, dad, I can't do a pull-up. I said, no, no, you currently struggle doing pull-ups. He said, what do you mean? No, no. I said, stop saying that you can't do pull-ups. You just say 
I want you to change your mindset to I'm currently struggling to do a pull up, you know, and then say, so what can we do? What experiment can we run? Hey, how about you jump up on there and, and we'll start working through the different motions of a pull up? Can you is it that you can't get started at the bottom is you can't you get it halfway up and you can't finish because there's different muscles involved. So we start dissecting it and we start breaking it down. Right. We break the problem down. Right. And so that's just a classic example. It's, it's just really also just truly a mindset. You know, if you go into it, what do they say? What do you think you can or you can't? You're right, Henry Ford. You know, I mean, that's that's the deal, man. If you go in with a defeatist mindset, you are already defeated. <laughs> you know, so don't be defeated before you even walk into the battle. Right. So, yeah, this is just more more, you know, more of my mindset that I'm going to at least try and I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself down and I'm not a bad salesperson because nobody picks up the phone. You know, I just might have a bad process. Okay. Man, like I, I think this applies so much to people having a vision for what their organization could be. Like if they look at a Paul Lakers or an organization like y'all's, or they look at a, just a really tightly run manufacturing organization, they say, man, we, we could never be that organized. And, and it's like, well, you are correct. Like that, that, because you say that you are correct. But right. the minute you change that to like, oh, how could we be that organized? Exactly. It's like, cause I just feel like if you say, oh, I, I could never run a marathon. Well then I like, you're certainly never going to try. Right. It, and it seems like it's like, you got to have a level of belief that the destination is possible. Otherwise, why would on earth would you do all the work? Exactly. Or I'm terrible at math, so I don't want to learn anything about, you know, Six Sigma statistics. No, you're not terrible at math. You just struggle with math. You currently struggle with math. That's right. That's the difference between an identity and a current reality. It's like, yeah, I'm not a leader. Golly, that is the most limiting belief on the planet. Like what, what would you say is like, oh, like I'm not as good of a leader as I could be. Right. Oh, I, I love the phrase could be like, I can spend the whole time talking about this. Cause it's just like that one shift, like we can, if, I mean, it can change literally everything. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen like any proven methods of success for being able to change someone's mindset with that regard? Because what we see so often is we've got, I mean, we work with so many entrepreneurs that literally, I mean, their bread and butter is yes, we can if, right? And they believe and they've got this vision. But then the challenge is, man, I need to take these people that are that are working the day job for us. And, and I, I want to teach them this, yes, for their job, but also like for their life. Because it's like, it gives them the ability to envision a better marriage. It gives them the ability to envision themselves as a good dad or mom. Like it, it gives them the ability to open up all these doors financially. So have you seen any proven methods for assisting someone in changing that mindset? A tool that I actually did, I don't even know if I've ever shared this before on a podcast or anything. I remember sitting in my home office before we started Gemba Academy, again, I had a day job and I kept my day job for like a year and a half, you know, while we were b- building the thing up. I mean, I had four kids to feed at the time and you know, all that. Um, but I remember I took out a piece of paper and I wrote at the top my ideal day. And what I did as I did this visioning exercise, I said, imagine that I'm working full time for Gemba Academy and my own company. And what's my ideal day going to look like? And I remember it was, now I look back on it, it was kind of, it's kind of funny and, you know, I chuckle about it now, but I had little things in there like, 
I'm going to have my home office, which I don't have a home office anymore, but <laughs> I'm going to have a home office and I'm going to work in shorts, a t-shirt and no socks. <laughs> that was really important. I was going to have no socks on. I was going to be barefoot, you know, and I, I talked about when I was going to get at my desk, what I was going to do. I was going to do this first, that second. I, I had a little, <laughs> our very first Get Back Academy studio was spare bedroom in my house, literally with a bed sheet on the wall as the backdrop. <laughs> I kid you not. Okay. And so like I had all these things, I, I'm going to shoot videos from this time to this time, and then I'm going to edit them. And so I did this visioning exercise and, it, and I just like a page and a half or whatever of writing. And it was just... It was freeing for me. It was like, uh, I, it was this powerful mechanism for me to be able to say, okay, let's go and try that, right? So I don't know. I just, I, I think it's good for people to just really think forward about when you win, what will that look like, mm. right? Because you can win and you will win if you do it the right way and you persevere, right? You will win. What's it going to look like? And so just having, and again, it kind of ties back to why, right? It's part of your why in a way, in a, in a tactical way, right? Because now we're getting more tactical. I'm working in shorts and a t-shirt and no socks, you know, at my desk and, <laughs> you know, my kids are going to bring me coffee. And I mean, I had all that kind of stuff in there, you know, and I don't know. So that was- <laughs> What's so cool that when you, when you start to like cast that vision, it's like, it's almost, I've seen so many times where it's almost like you can't stop from people if you get them to cast a vision- for what the future could be. It's yeah. almost like you can't stop them from then asking the question like, well, what could we do to get there? Like, it's yeah. almost like they just naturally start connecting point A to point B. And so like my takeaway from this is be the leader that asks your people, what would your ideal day look like? Even if yeah. it was five or 10 years from now, because man, if they can start to view the company that they work for as a vehicle for helping them get there, yeah. I just feel like meaning and sense of purpose and enjoyment is just going to go out the wazoo. Well, there's a, there's a, another lean kind of tool that we teach called leader standard work. And part of that is it is planning your day out in very, sometimes 15 minute increments, sometimes 30 minute increments. And, and so we do that, our team, I had uh, uh, many of our team members write out their ideal day, you know, like everything from like, a, you know, either a, maybe a customer success. So when somebody buys a subscription for us, then our customer success team takes over and, you know, they try to make the experience good and all that kind of stuff. And so like, hey, customer success rep, like what's your ideal day? Like, how are you going to, you know, how is it going to go? And what are your wins going to be? And when you have a, a tough one, how are you going to react, right? Because that's part of your ideal day. When something bad happens, how am I going to not let it wreck me, right? You know, and and so so they 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 do this, and and then it then it comes and manifests itself into this leader standard work document, which is like you know some of them are very detailed. Like on Wednesday at three o'clock, I know what Jennifer's doing, you know, because yeah. she shared it with me, and she's doing it, man. I'm gonna tell you, at three o'clock, she's got this particular task that she's doing, you know. So yeah, but it uh, starts with that vision. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so number one, open your mind to change. Number two, think yes, we can if. Number three, always attack processes, not people. Just expound a little bit on why this one matters. Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like if something bad happens, sometimes a tendency, and I still do it, and I've been at it for a long time, is well, who did that? Who did that? Who, who, who? <laughs> you know, and it's not about who. I mean, we'll get to the who because, but it's, it's more about where, where in the process did it break down and why did it break down? 
you know, another lean principle is we'll have what we call standard work, leader standard work as your own plan. But standard work is like, hey, if we're doing a podcast, you know, these are the steps that we're going to follow for a very successful podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know you have it. I've seen it, you know, so if, if the podcast doesn't go well, then you got to look back where in the process that it break down. And so then the next time we got to put countermeasures in place. So that doesn't happen again. You see what I'm saying? So it's all about the process. Yes. People are involved. Now, if you have people who are just don't want to follow the process or, you know, are purposely trying to do damage, well, that's an HR problem and you handle it accordingly, right? But most people aren't doing that. The majority of the human race comes to work and wants to do a good job, okay? But so often we have terrible leaders who have terrible processes and then you blame your people because you're a terrible leader and you have a terrible process, (laughs) right? And so we've we've got to always focus on the process, right? And, and then our, then our, our team members are going to be able to be successful. Yeah. And that can be, what I've observed is that can be a little bit of a shift. Obviously it's a huge shift for the owner. Cause I think it can be really easy to be like, Oh, they just did it wrong. We need to get rid of them. Right. We need to get a smart right. person in there. It's like, and no, maybe not. Maybe take some ownership right. of this thing. But right. then I've also found with really great team members, like really rockstar team members, like they can make a mistake and they can disobey this commandment and they can be like, I'm just an idiot. I can't believe I did that. I'm just an idiot. And it's like, well, that's not helpful because if you're an idiot, we're never going to be able to move forward. But if you just say like, oh, I just need a better process, then then you can start to ask the question of how we can improve this thing. Yeah. And, some, and two very powerful words or three, depending on how you say it, for when a mistake is ha- happens, whether I make a mistake, you make a mistake, a team member makes a mistake is it's okay to say, gosh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. Mm. And that, and you own it, right? And now we say, okay, we're over that. That's the people side of it. They're contrite. They're sorry. Okay, got it. Now let's focus on the process, you know? So yeah. especially as leaders or parents or whatever it is, it's very humbling to go into your son room or your daughter's room after you've yelled at them and lost your cool and say, hey, babe, I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't have done that. You know, what you did was wrong, but I shouldn't have reacted that way. You know, so you own your mistake and then you get to the process. Okay. So really specific practical question for you on that. We have a marketing intern right now that, man, this guy, he's in college right now and he's just doing this job on the side. And he's in many ways, what makes sure this podcast goes out on time. He sends our email to our entire email list and all of these things. And like, he is so deeply passionate about this mission. He's character and culture fit to the nth degree, right? Uh, and and he's just such a good guy to be around that is so ahead of his age in so many ways. And so he's, he's such a joy for our team to work with. The work that we have him doing right now, and, and he would say this too, is very, it can be a little bit tedious and it can be a little bit detail oriented, right? So there's certain things that you need to make sure you follow the exact process. Otherwise, an email that was supposed to go out on Wednesday to 800 people goes out yeah, on yeah, Monday right, to yeah. 800 people, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so this is a very specific example. And yeah. I know I know Duke wouldn't mind me talking about this, but like that's just not his natural wiring. And I have a lot of empathy for that because it's not my natural wiring either. And at yeah. the same time, it's like, it's a, it's a good gig for him because it's a paid internship. He's making some cash while he's in college. And like, he's trying to focus on, okay, how do I, it may not be my natural wiring, but I can always improve. I can get better. I can limit mistakes. 
what would your advice to him be for just making sure he is approaching kind of those potential areas for mistakes in the right way? Does, does that question make sense? Does that resonate? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, first of all, he may need help, right? He may need help coming up with the process and documenting the process. Because um, so often we don't have our, our processes documented. Now, perhaps you do with the podcast. And then something that we teach within that, that TWI movement that I talked about earlier, there's one aspect of it called job instruction and, and how to do a job the correct way and uh, or how to instruct people to do a job. And what we do in there is we talk about, well, here, here's the key things that you should be doing. And then then we talk about later on in the process, here's why, here's the reason for that step. So tying, mm-hmm. the, tying the activity to a reason can be very eye-opening, you know? And so like if I'm teaching you how to do a partic- particular job using job instruction, first I'm just going to show you how to do it. Then I'm going to go through it a second time and I'm going to talk about some of the key points for those those big steps that we just talked about. And then the third time through, I'm going to talk about the reasons for those key points. You know, so I th- so that might be something worth entertaining is, you know, yeah, here's why we do, here's how we do it, but here's why we do each individual mm-hmm. step. And what you might find out is you don't have a good reason. Well, let's stop doing that step. That doesn't even make any, <laughs> there's no value on that step. So that's another part of lean, right? If it's not adding value to the end listener or to the customer, why are you doing it? You know, that's, yeah, that's so helpful. And, and that, I just put myself in his position. If I was in his position, we'd, we'd be sending out emails every day of the week. I, it would be a nightmare, right? Like, because I, like, I would just mess this stuff up a lot and, and I could get better at it. It would just take a large amount of discipline and I'm not going to exercise that discipline unless I understand like, okay, what are the, what is the purpose? What are the ramifications? What are the benefits of doing this right? Or the consequences of doing it wrong? Not just for me personally, but for like our audience and like, why does it really matter? matter that we nail this. And then, cause that would, it would recenter my mind on like, okay, you really got to focus like this, this thing really, really matters. And in yeah. some ways that can increase meaning in the work too, I think. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, and also simplify, simplify, simplify. That's, you know, and focus, you know, we talk about the F word around here, focus, yeah. <laughs> you know, focus and simplify. And yeah, when you, when you do that, I mean, there are, you know, like, we got a podcast as well. And I get it, man. And there's a lot of steps. And if you get one thing wrong, uh, you send it out to a bunch of people the wrong day or whatever, you know? And, but even that, it's also kind of like, okay, that wasn't optimal, but it's not the end of the world. I didn't unsubscribe from your newsletter because I got my (laughs) Wednesday email on Monday. You know what I'm saying? You know, so sometimes you got to give yourself a little grace as well. And and uh, I like it. There's some times when if our website goes down or something like that, I know the phone calls are going to start coming in and I'm sort of like, ah, all right, let's go, you know, because I know my team's going to handle it very well. You know, they're going to be, you know, and it's going to, in a way, our customers are going to appreciate the way we handle that situation. So, you know. When you get lemons, that's make right. lemonade, right? <laughs> so. That's the biggest difference of me as a business owner versus me as an employee is I, I start to realize, oh, this isn't the game. This is just practice. Like yeah. every day is just practice and we're just taking another at bat. And man, if yeah. a great hitter in baseball hits 300, yeah. I think I could hit, I think I could hit 300 today, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, exactly. that exactly. just changes everything. 
Okay, uh, you already mentioned the word simplify, and that alludes to commandment number four, seek simple solutions. Can you talk about what this looks like and how this plays out? Yeah, I mean, it's just, we have a tendency for some reason, what's the the famous um, saying, I I didn't have time to write you a, a short letter, so I wrote you a long one, you know? Yeah. So often it's easy and convenient to just throw complicated, you know, solutions at a problem when if we would just step back think about it a little bit, ponder an experiment or two to, to execute, you know, we can probably come up with a far simpler, more elegant solution. Simple and elegant to me are very, very similar in a way, mm. you know, for something to be elegant, typically it's, it's, it's simple as well. It's beautiful. It's simple, but that's what makes it elegant. I always think of that Steve Jobs example when he came back to Apple. It's like what he did is he didn't start a bunch of new things when he came back. It's like he cut a bunch of the crap whenever he came back to Apple. And so it seems like, I mean, some of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with is they have the ability to walk into messy situations and and bring simplicity to it. Does that that resonate? And if so, like how as a leader – do you play the role of chief simplifier, right? Like I'm Mm going to step into something that's complex and work on making it simple. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it comes back to understanding your processes, whatever those processes might be and documenting those processes. Take your podcast with your team and just get a pile of post-it notes and just start writing out the various steps to that podcast and just stick them up on the wall, you know, and, and then include, you know, any electronic communication. Oh yeah. I email Alex and Alex sends a newsletter out or whatever, you know, just like get it all up there. And what you'll find is that, wow, that's what we do. That's how it works. Yeah. That's how it works. And then you just start kind of looking at it and say, well, you know, does that step add value? Yes or no. You know, um, and when by adding value, I mean, typically we look at three things, you know, is the customer willing to pay for it or, or, does the customer value it kind of thing? Second one is, you know, does the thing change, right? Like if you're not transforming something or it's not moving closer to a finished product, then it's probably not value added. And then the third thing is that it's done right the first time, right? So you ask those three questions against every process step, and then it affords you the opportunity to say, hey, man, those, and you can put a red X on them or a, a red sticky circle or whatever on the post-it note. And then you stand back and say, well, if we pulled that out, how would it work? You know, could we, could we do it still? Well, yeah, we just have to do a little bit more here. A little bit. So you might, you know, move some things around. And next thing you know, you went from a 20 step process down to an eight step process. The 20 step process might've taken a week and the, the new process might take three hours. You know, it's not unusual. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to recognize like a, a click as simple as a click on a computer is a step in a process that increases friction. Like that's, that was one of the things that just blew my mind at a place that I worked previously is like they had to simulate what it was like to be a customer that was, went from perspective to through the door. And it was like so hard to do business with us is what we realized. We were like, oh my gosh, it's almost yeah. like we're literally like blocking oh, them. Like, us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and but yeah. like everything from it's like, oh, those four web pages could be one web page. And it's like, and it just all this stuff where if you can reduce that friction, you're bringing simplicity. And, right. I, and I think that occurs in a team context as well. That's right. Okay, so we've got open your mind to change. Think, yes, we can. If, always attack processes, not people. Seek simple solutions. Next one, if it's broken, stop and fix it. This feels counterintuitive. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is a classic kind of Toyota example. Um, it's not just for manufacturing, but I'll give the manufacturing example first. So on an assembly line in Toyota, there's a thing called tack time, which is simply how often should a, a new car roll off the end of the assembly line in order to satisfy customer demand? And kind of the classic tack time at Toyota and many other automotive companies now is around 60 seconds. So every 60 seconds, a new car is rolling off the end of the assembly line, which means to say that every individual little process step can't take more than 60 seconds. Otherwise, you won't meet tack time. You see what I'm saying? And so what happens in a Toyota assembly line, if you ever get a chance to go visit one, or even yeah, if you go to Ford or GM, they're all the same now. So it's not all about Toyota. But you standing up there on their little catwalk or whatever it is, you know, just watching and everything just kind of slowly moves, you know, it doesn't even look rushed. It's just kind of slowly moves. And the operators are working in there. They got a little, I have, might have a little area, right? And it's marked off. And in this little area, I might put some stripping on the door or something like that, or, you know, or a screw in a couple of screws and assemble some part or something. So my part of it, however, if it's coming into my area and I notice that, hey, this thing here doesn't look right, you know, or I, I, I can't put my my stripping in because something's wrong here. Well, there's a thing called an andon cord and, uh, and it's all over the, the line. And it's literally, it, you pull this cord and what happens is a music will start and a little light will go off and the team, nothing happens yet. The line's still moving, but the, the team leader will rush over there and be like, hey, what's going on here? Is there a problem or not? And they assess whether or not it's really a problem or not. And if it is really a problem, like there's a mistake on this car that we can't send forward or it's going to compound, they stop the line, you know, and it's a big deal, right? The line has stopped. And so they're then all hands are on deck trying to figure out what happened, where did this problem come from? Are all these other cars right behind it with the same problem? You know, and so the reason that you do that is if you let that car go on down the line, well, you're just building defect after, you're, you're, every car is going to be defective. You know what I'm saying? So you can't afford to send it on. And so what happens just in the in the real world, like not, or not real world, but non automotive world is we might see a problem and we have this tendency to be like, oh, problems are bad. I don't want to get in trouble or something. I don't want to blame other people or whatever it might be. But again, we're not blaming people. We're blaming processes, but we've got to have the discipline to stop and then try to fix the problem immediately. Even if it means that we're going to be late to the customer, it's better to be late to the customer than to send them a defective product or service. So it's really, but it's hard, man. It's hard. Because at the same time, as a, as a business owner, you don't want to be the person that's always putting out fires. And so it, it seems like as a business owner, the answer is not to ignore the thing it's on fire all the time. Sometimes maybe you, you need to overlook some things and be like, I, we just can't focus on that right now. But more often than not, probably you need to pay attention to like, okay, let's get that fire out and maybe I can equip and empower someone to do that, but then probably ask the question, what keeps causing this fire? <laughs> like why, you know, it's like, what, what is the thing that's upstream from this that like, and that's, I feel like that's your job as a leader is you've got to get, and, and I know this is actually, I think your eighth commandment as well. Like you've got to get to the root of what's actually going on. Yeah. And so, well, even you mentioned firefighting is an interesting one because we see that a lot with companies that are newer in the continuous improvement journey. And so often what happens is 
the, the, the firefighters who are really good, they're rewarded. So we reward firefighting and that's extremely detrimental to long-term success. Not that you don't want to reward someone for doing a good job. That's fine. But you don't want to have to go send firefighters in because then that just means you have chaos. It means you don't have stability in your processes, right? And so if we are having to firefight, that's actually a very, very bad thing, right? Because it just means that something just, and it's the real world, things do pop up, right? We are always going to have a fire here or there. But if it's some companies, it's just like every day, it's a new fire, you know, because they have no stability, they have no good processes. And at that point, man, it's, it's tough to practice continuous improvement when you have chaos and no stability. So the first thing to do is to lay down some stability, <laughs> get some order, right in your business and then we can make it better so and that connects to the vision piece i, I mean you know it's something that i've i've seen a lot of recently in some in person work that we've done is like the, there are some ceos that i mean they're managing 600 person organizations massive and their entire day is literally just, I mean, they can't go to a 30 minute meeting and right. not be on the phone, not be answering emails, not having to deal with something and stuff like that. And that person doesn't know anything different. It relates to what we were talking about vision. It's like, it's almost like they can't see what a CEO, like they've never seen what a CEO should be, right? Cause they just built this thing and then it was successful and it's awesome. It's like, they're still doing the same thing day to day with 600 people that they were doing at one person. And it's just like, I mean, their, their work ethic is insane, but they're going to, I mean, they're going to kill themselves in their organization. How, like, how do you take that person that's just like drowning in it, right? And help them start to tone down the chaos a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, assuming they, they're in a leadership position and they have the, the ability to go out and invoke change in the organization. I mean, it does start as simple as, you know, making sure that number one, you got enough employees, you know, to spread the work around, right? And, and today that's not always the case, right? As we know. So trying to get the correct number of people, you know, in the organization so that the leader then can delegate some things. So they're able to, like, like Paul Akers would say, you know, they, he, he wants to think of high, he wants to be able to elevate his thinking to higher, more important stuff, not the day to day. So in other words, we have to have a stable, fixed pro a process that's working well in order for a leader to really do their job and lead. If the leader is just having to look back and fix stuff behind them, we're not doing it right. So, yeah, I would start with making sure you got the right amount of people. And then it just comes as straightforward as, you know, do we have good processes in place? I, I keep coming back to it, but th there's no other answer. There's no other there's no other solution other than making sure that we've got good processes in place. We've got the right people. We've got the right training. We've got the right resources. And then, you know, we follow our plan at that point. But if you don't have the right number of resources or you don't have the good processes in place, you are going to deal in chaos. And that's, that's, uh, that's where a lot of companies are. And again, they might have a great product, right? And they got a great sales team that can sell that product. And so the money's coming in and it is, it's just vicious cycle, right? Well, and it creates a, a really tough work environment because the other thing I would say is like sometimes the the knee-jerk reaction is hire more people, which I agree with you. I think that a lot of times that is what's necessary. But I think also it's like, okay, well, the people you have 
don't understand what their top five responsibilities are. Like right. they're, they're and, you know, and so it's, it's literally like a, a 500 person free for all on just getting the job. And what's amazing is they do amazing work. And it's right. like, man, think about how good this could be if people knew like, oh, this is my lane. Yep. That, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm glad we dove into that some. Okay, next one is use creativity, not capital. Man, whenever I heard you talk earlier about the origins of lean and kind of the war machine, I, I thought down to this one, commandment number six, just because it seems like so much of the origins of what created lean was just like, oh, well, we have to. Like, there's no other option. There's and no and people had to get... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like we we had to get creative. It's right. like, oh, we're going to like uh, employ women and we're going to like just find a way. We like these guys have to have boots to wear. We're going to find a way, right? right. And right. so, I mean, it seems as though there's almost a uh like connection between like creativity and constraints in some ways. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that way. I think I think you're probably right. You know, like the kind of the classic example that I would use here is, you know, in a factory, if somebody is like, the, the, if you ever take a tour of a factory, they might say, oh, they're very proud of their super expensive conveyor system, like millions and millions of dollars spent on this conveyor system. And I'm kind of like, what if we just move those things closer together and we didn't need to use conveyors? You know, I mean, so it really can be as straightforward as that. It's like, don't buy million dollar conveyors when all you got to do is move those things closer together and we're all around each other and we don't need to, you know what I'm saying? Or from a technology perspective, you know, um, perhaps you don't need that super duper CRM. You could, you know, get by with maybe at the scale of the company to beginning with something as straightforward as a spreadsheet. You know, now I wouldn't, you can't really scale with the spreadsheet, but but uh, but that's an example where you don't have to necessarily go out and just spend you know tons of money on the fanciest technical solution when a whiteboard and post-it notes might work well. You know, mm-hmm. people are like, what during the pandemic, the heat of it, it was like, what what electronic mapping software should we use? And I'm like, I don't know. We got a webcam. I got a whiteboard here. I'll just zoom in and I'll write on my whiteboard and you can look at it on your webcam. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, that's right. Well, I mean, it goes back to the point. It's like, man, I just think there's so much value. Like I would assume you've experienced this. There's so much value to you having had the experience of filming videos with a bed sheet behind you and like just saying like, well, we figured it out, then we can figure it out. Like, I just think a culture of scrappiness just can't be replaced. And I would put my bet on the scrappy person and the scrappy team every day of the week. Yeah. I think scrappiness and creativity are kind of the same thing. I love it. Yeah. And the ability to grind when you need to grind. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. Problems. This is number seven. Problems are opportunities in disguise. This feels like another mindset one. Yeah, sure is. I mean, there's a famous saying, what um, no problem is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we when we walk into an organization, if somebody say like, "How are things going?" Oh, everything's great, you know. Oh, really? Everything's perfect, great, you know. And and so again, it's a pride, it pride getting in a way, right, of being vulnerable. So to be good at continuous improvement, you've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be willing to say, "Hey." Um, we're doing okay, but gosh, there's some things that we think we could do better and we'd sure would love your help, you know, or some ideas or whatever to point us in the right direction. When you have that mindset that it's okay to have problems. In fact, it's good to have problems because then if you have a problem, that means that 
there was a countermeasure, there's a countermeasure waiting to be put into place. And that's a beautiful thing. Because once mm. you implement good countermeasures, you'll notice we don't, we always use that word, we counter problems. We don't typically say we ever solve a problem because a problem can reappear for a different root cause, right? And so we counter root causes, okay? Yeah, maybe the problem does go away, but it could come back two years later for a different root cause. So we didn't really solve the problem, right? But that the original countermeasure you know, still working on that, that old root cause, but there's a new root cause now. So that's kind of the, the mindset there that the problems are, are, are okay to have, right? I mean, they're not, I, we don't wish for problems, but you know, when they come, we don't run from them or we're not ashamed of them. We own them and uh, we counter them. Yeah. And that's just such a, just feels like such a healthy and grounded belief because it's like, I know you and I believe like this side of heaven, there's not going to not be problems, right? So it's like, well, we better be able to deal with that reality and operate in accordance with it. Yeah. And and not to get too deep on the theological stuff, but there's going to be suffering in this world, you know, there's going to be pain, you know, and suffering. And how do we embrace that suffering? You know, do we cower from it? Do we run from it? Do we hide from it? Or do we pick up that cross or whatever it might be and carry it, you know? with conviction, mm-hmm. you know, and grace, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's all related, right? Like how we approach a problem in, in the workplace is what's going to happen when, you know, one of our kids does something that we don't want them to do, <laughs> you know, mm. and you know what I'm saying? Man, and, and just for the people that are listening to it, it's like the way that you respond whenever you see a problem in the workplace could be your testimony. Like that could be the thing that your team members see and they say, man, something's different about that man or woman. That just gets me so fired up. It's like, it's not in the, when things are going well that they see your faith. It's when things are going poorly. So last year here in Texas, we had this crazy cold spell winter thing came blowing, blowing through. Oh, it was bonkers. It was insane. Yeah, yeah. You know, the grid went down and all the rest of it. And well, we've got this building here in Keller, Texas that we work at. And I opened up the door and uh, I look in and water was just flying out of a wall. And I was like, oh. <gasps> And our brand new building, brand new building, water flying out of the wall. A pipe had burst, you know, flooded the whole place. Our video studio, you know, the wall and everything that we use, it's all ruined. And I remember just standing there for a second, like, hmm, this isn't ideal. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and I may, I may have freaked out a little bit with some colleagues. Oh my God, of water. Like, how do we turn the water off? You know? And, um, but I quickly got control of myself. I had a, I, one of my best friends named Coulter doesn't work here. And, uh, he came over right away and he was just like, Hey man, let's get the word. What do we got to do? You know? And I'm like, amen, man, what do we got to do? Me freaking out and walking around getting all mad or whatever. I'm going to help. You know what I mean? So he's like, He's like, grabbed a squeegee and he said, let's go. Let's just start pushing the water out. <laughs> and next thing you know, my wife had called around to some friends and I had like 40 people turn up with brooms and squeegees and whatnot. And we never ever, we didn't even use a professional company to come help us. Well, there was no, they couldn't come for like weeks anyhow. So, but yeah, you know, I'd, like that was an, an example to where I was, I was, I'm always curious how I'm going to respond to a crisis, you know? You think mm-hmm. about them, like, how are you really going to respond? And, yeah, and looking back on that, I was like, you know, it wasn't perfect, but, you know, we did okay, you know, with the with the hand that we were dealt. Um, whereas, like, we could have just freaked out and, you know, hid and ran and cried and whatnot. That wouldn't have helped. 
Yeah, and then you just realize like, oh, uh, countering that problem was just building the muscle so that I'll be able to counter a bigger problem next time. Yeah. It's like and, it's just constantly leveling up. <laughs> and to your point, we have now really good countermeasures in place where we know if it hits a certain temperature, the water goes off into the main building, uh, you know, our, 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 our taps get opened. You know, we've got a process in place now where we didn't have that. That's before. right. And so. so that goes to, to number eight as well, which is fix the root cause. Like and we've already touched on this a little bit. So for the sake of time, we don't have to go on this a, a ton. But what I'd love for you to share is the exercise that y'all use just to get to the root cause of something. Or, and I love this because it's something that anyone can use. Yeah, so can so you I mean, share a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the more common, there's, there's a number of different ways of going about it. But one of the most common ones is called 5Y. And uh, now it doesn't always manifest in five actual Y. Sometimes it's six, sometimes it's 20. Sometimes there's parallel branches of Y, but it's kind of like, hey, why, why, why did the milk spoil? Well, you know, we had more than we could drink. Why did we have more milk than we could drink? Well, we went and bought five gallons of it the other day at the store. Why did we buy five gallons of it the other day at the store? Well, there was a sale and we wanted to save money. You know, so, ah, so we get to a point to where you'd be like, okay, listen, just because there's a sale doesn't necessarily mean we got to go out and buy a bunch of stuff, a bunch of milk, because it might go bad and we have to throw it away, right? So we kind of get, we keep asking why until we can get to an actionable root cause that we can then act on or put a countermeasure in place on. And so, so sometimes, I mean, the, the Japanese lingo for 5Y, actually, it's better, John Miller, my business partner, explained, he speaks Japanese, that it's better described as drip, drip. Um, that's kind of where it came, like, what, faucet, drip, drip. You know, that's kind of the, the, the lingo behind the original term 5Y. And so, mm. it's, so it's not always five, that's just what we, what we call it. But it's just asking why, it's kind of like kids are great at it. Greater, they're great at 5Y. Why, daddy? Why, mommy? <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, because I said so. It's like we beat it out of our kids. Just quit asking why, you know, when really we yeah. want them to ask why, because it means they're digging for the truth. Well, that, that's what's crazy to me is there's people in uh, our space and our and kind of leadership development space right now that are training people like, oh, you'd never want to use the question why because that puts people on the defensive. And I'm, I'm like, well, maybe you should raise up a team that's not so freaking sensitive and actually right. lead a, bit, a little bit because it's like the question why is actually really freaking important. Like yeah. we need to be able to say that word. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I hadn't even heard of that movement out there. That's against why, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> there, there's, there's a movement for everything. There's yeah, a, like, yeah, we yeah. just assume that there's a movement. Okay. Number nine, uh, the wisdom of many is better than the knowledge of one. So the question I have around this one is like, what does that do for you as a leader to hold that belief that the wisdom of many is better than the knowledge of one? Again, it comes back to humility and being okay with that you might not have the right answer on your own or, you, you know, and, and that you've got a team around you, you know, for that company that, you, you know, has 500, 5,000 employees. I mean, that's a lot of brain power right there. You know, that's a lot of talent sitting at your fingertips. Let them go to work, you know, or why do you have them? You know, so let them think, let them experiment, let them learn, let them discover. And when you do that, the organization is unstoppable. Yeah. 
We just did a, a podcast interview with um, one of the co-founders of an organization called The Bible Project, and he's really strong, um, like his his expertise is in making explainer videos that make the complex simple. And one of the things that he said is he's like, man, one of the things that switched for me in getting good at this craft is starting with the presupposition that everyone around me is really smart, like really smart. And if they're not getting it, it's because I'm not doing a good job explaining. It's not because they're, the, and I just, man, I think that's so related to this because it's like, yeah. man, we've got 10 brains in this room. Right. Like we can figure this out. It's not right. all on me. Well, yes, we can if, right? <laughs> it comes back. That, oh, cool. that's right. It, dude, yeah. And that's the, what's so cool about all of this is it all connects. And so at the, like when we record the wraps for this episode, we'll also record a full run through, but we're at time. So if people want to to follow Ron and everything that he's doing, uh, is it GimbaAcademy.com? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. And we'll put the link to all of their resources in the show notes and everything. So number 10 is what I would love for you to close with. And I would just love for you to paint a picture to the leaders listening of this truth that is the final commandment, that is there is no final destination, um, which feels like kind of an ironic way to end. But explain a little bit about what that mindset does for the leader and what that means. Yeah, well, we call it continuous improvement for for a reason. It's continuous. It does never end, right? So it's a journey, you know, and and we can always improve. We can always get better, you know, as individuals, as an organization. And when you have that mindset of growth and of learning and of experimenting, it's going to be really difficult to fail. It doesn't make you infallible or that you will never fail. But it's going to be really difficult if you have that mindset of just keep getting a little bit better every single day. And if you do that, good things are going to happen. Mm. Ron, uh, thank you uh, for living this message. And then also thank you for sharing this message with us. I so appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Alex. This was fun. Okay, let's run through them real quick one more time. Open your mind to change. Think, yes, we can if... Always attack the processes, not people. Seek simple solutions. If it's broken, stop and fix it. Use creativity, not capital. Problems are opportunities in disguise. Fix the root cause and ask why five times. The wisdom of many is better than the knowledge of one, and there's no final destination on the improvement journey. Gosh, I'm so grateful to Ron for the principles that he shared today, but also the wisdom that he shared that's rooted in experience of being a business builder and owner himself. So I hope that you got something from this that you can take principally as a teacher, but also take practically and introduce into your organization. Now, if you want to follow everything that Ron and his team are doing, you can go to GimbaAcademy.com and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Hey, real quick, before we go, uh, you know that we send out more content every single Wednesday in an email that we call Worth It Wednesday, and that's because I believe most email isn't worth it. So we try to send at least one that is worth your time and worth your energy. So every Wednesday, you'll get a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. So many of you are already part of that Worth It Wednesday community. If you want to sign up, you can do so at the show notes of this episode or at pathforgrowth.com, and you'll be getting that email the next Wednesday that comes around. Y'all, we're so grateful for you. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go.